Hello and welcome to QPod, the investor podcast series focused on sharing our investment insights. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development at QIC, and today I'm joined by QIC's Senior Portfolio Manager and Research Analyst for Global Credit, Richard Garland. Welcome, Richard. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me. Last week, Richard, you highlighted in one of our daily market update meetings that the US primary issuance to date in calendar 2020 was almost at the levels other years have seen in their entirety across the complete year. So it's fantastic to have you on QPod today to update our listeners on exactly what you're seeing unfolding in the global credit markets and where it might lead to. Clearly, the roller coaster ride our markets have been on since the onset of COVID-19 and the unprecedented levels of fiscal and monetary stimulus that followed has contributed to this scenario playing out in the US credit issuance market. So, Richard, I might start by asking you to fill us in with regards to these record levels of uh, credit issuance you're seeing in the market. Is this purely being um, sort of fed by this stimulus from the central banks and the and the governments around the world? Uh, and is it just isolated to the US credit markets? Can you fill us in on what you're seeing in the market currently? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been fed by, by central banks um, to an extent because obviously central banks have come out, you know, the ECB and the Fed, they've come out and said that we're going to buy bonds. And so this has given the market the ability to take down a greater amount of issuance. And we certainly have seen some record-breaking issuance. You know, we've seen about a trillion dollars worth of issuance in the first five months of this year in the US um, investment grade market. And that's when um, we're only expecting between 850 to 900 million for the full year. And so during the first five months, we've actually seen a lot of records broken. We've seen the largest ever week We've seen the largest ever month in April, and we've also seen the largest ever quarter, and that's Q1 2020. And so this is also from the supply side, it was really a response from companies in the immediate risks emanating from COVID-19. And shoring up liquidity by um, issuing debt is the first step that these companies take um, in times of crisis. And so now we really see this problem as being solved. The liquidity problem is solved. Therefore, there's no need to issue debt at such an intense pace that we've seen for the first five months. Corporate liquidity levels are now at 20-year peaks, with the previous peak being in 2009. Richard, were you taken by surprise? I mean, you sort of mentioned in the first five months, and I know when you and I speak sort of once or twice a week, it's like every time I speak to you, it's record, record, record. Were you taken surprised by just the sort of the numbers being printed and also what was being absorbed by the market? Yeah, I mean, it was incredibly surprising. Uh, I think, you know, that largest week, for example, um, the weekend of the 30th of March, that was $118 billion. That was huge. You know, on, on average, even during a busy period, you might see around $30 billion of issuance. And so that did take um, me by surprise. And so now that you've sort of had this, you know, this wave of issuance of supply and also demand absorbing it uh, happen in the first five months, now that you look forward to the back end of the year, how does this all start to play out? Can this issuance and, and, and I suppose demand for that issuance continue into the back end of the year or are you expecting there to be a lightning of, off in the markets? Yeah, I think from an issuance sense, definitely a lightning off. Like it's it's been a flood for the first five months of the year and I think street estimates now have for the remainder of the year, so for the next sort of seven months, um, only $250 billion of of issuance and obviously we've had a a trillion in the first five months. So that's a big um, move down in terms of expectations. 
We also know that, you know, over the next seven months, we've got 300 mil of maturities and coupons due back to investors. And these are generally reinvested in the market. So it's likely that credit investors will actually be receiving more money back from companies than companies will be seeking in borrowings. Yeah, I want to pick up that last point there. And you also referenced 2009 as sort of the initial playbook, but we sort of, I suppose, in, when I look back on that particular period, some of it was being made up on the fly, whereas I feel this time around, the central banks and governments are probably a little bit more prepared by having that playbook to rely on. So when I look at this particular market, what might be different is this idea of supporting fallen angels. So Richard, I know you've done some work around some of the drivers fact, um, driving this forward-looking issuance. Can you give us a bit of an idea on what they are and what they mean to the market? Yeah, sure. So uh, apart from sort of issuance being a lot lower and net negative issuance being something that'll happen, there's, you know, four other factors we've really been looking at um, as to why we think supply demand technical will be really strong in the back end of 2020 and why it could drive credit spreads tighter. One of the factors you mentioned was was fallen angels and we've had 120 bill of IG credits um, downgraded to high yield and we think there's actually more to come. And there's so the supply demand implications here. So fallen angel issuers will no longer issue into IG markets, but instead into high yield. And so there'll be less IG supply around from that standpoint. And then also IG funds due to portfolio limits will actually need to sell any of their high yield bonds or recent fallen angels. And so there'll be greater demand for any IG issuers left that issue. Another major reason for US IG bond scarcity for the rest of 2020 is what the US Federal Reserve is doing. They're looking to buy bonds and, you know, this will actually leave less bonds for investors. So far, the Fed has been buying credit ETFs or exchange traded funds. And if they continue at the same pace, this will take another 30 billion out of the USIG market. This number could grow substantially to uh, 250 bill if they use the full amount of the secondary market credit facility. Obviously then, as you've kind of mentioned, that the reach for yield is 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 the fourth fact that really is contributing to, to bond scarcity. So quantitative easing and central banks um, are definitely going to boost inflows into the fixed income asset class over the next few months. But government yields are so low, so investors are looking for a search for yield. And so we think credit could um, benefit disproportionately. And, you know, a real reach for yield feeding frenzy could, could ensure... Um, and then finally, bond buybacks will increase if the situation improves. You know, the amount of debt on companies' balance sheets are, is at wartime levels and it's unlikely to stay the same if conditions normalise and therefore a fast recovery would lead to more bond tenders and even more bond scarcity. Companies would do this to conserve credit ratings and also to get their weighted average cost of capital back to a more optimal level. We think, though, that corporates will be very cautious around buying bonds back. They'll reduce this liquidity shield, if you like, only if the medium-term horizon becomes a lot clearer. And as we've mentioned, this is not just a US phenomenon. The same supply-demand dynamic um, is happening. And in Europe, for instance, we're seeing corps having plenty of liquidity and we're seeing the ECB, similar to the, to the Fed, also buying credit. But that's only relatively new, isn't it, Richard? I mean, my understanding is the Fed's been very direct in their buying, whereas the ECB's sort of taking a slightly less direct route. Uh, is that a fair comment or have I got that wrong? No, I think the ECB has been buying in, in larger amounts and 
you know, have been a bit more open-ended in their buying where uh, I think you're right in saying that the Fed has been a, a little more targeted and to now actually hasn't bought a single bond in the, in the secondary um, credit market and have just been focusing on ETFs. So it seems from, from that standpoint that the ECB um, is a lot more aggressive um, than, than the Fed and a lot more all in in the way that they're um, supporting credit markets. So it's quite a complicated sort of scenario here. You've got these transient investors, which I'm assuming will be the first to go. You've got demand remaining through the ECB and the Fed. Uh, you've also got bond buybacks happening from potential from companies as well. Um, so I'm trying to work out what this all means for the end investor. Um, can you, you know, help us with the algorithm here, Richard? Is the being the US being the biggest credit market in the world, is that the focus area for institutional investors back here in Australia or is the European markets, given that more um, aggressive stance in the ECB, a better place for them? And maybe even in Australia, given that the RBA's approach is somewhat different, is our local market perhaps immune to it and sort of an area for pickings for local investors also? Yeah, thanks, Craig. I think it's fair to say that after the spread widening from COVID-19, we actually see credit value across different markets in the globe, including Australia. And, you know, one of the things our team does is constantly assess RV across countries and regions. The Australian supply-demand outlook is more nuanced than in the US and Europe. You know, the Australian corporate balance sheets are comparatively in strong shape. And our corporate market is actually a market that's more bank-funded. We have seen corporates increase their liquidity, but they have done this more through bank lines. But like with the rest of the world, the overall liquidity is very, very strong here too. Forward-looking primary issuance will be contained and demand is still robust. And we are really seeing the same mentality that is taking over the rest of the globe, and that's the reach for yield. So really a positive technical here for Aussie credit spreads as well. I think it's true to say that the, the RBA has really focused around helping banks to, to fund corporates more than actually buying direct corporate debt. And this is really around the, the, that different nuance I talked about where uh, Australian corporates are, are largely funded by banks rather than issuing in institutional credit markets. And when you look at the global markets, Richard, when you've got that slight imbalance where, where it looks like you're going to have potentially more demand and supply, that's also a positive outlook with regards to credit holders. Yeah, definitely. We've talked about today, you know, I guess more Europe and, and the US and the supply demand picture there. But we know that Aussie credit spreads are really high, highly correlated to the US. So so strong US market is, is really good for credit spreads in Australia as well. Richard, thank you. That was a really, really good overview. And um, it, it sort of helped us understand that rapidly evolving market that it is creating opportunities for investors, not only in the US, but Europe and in Australia as well. So thank you for pointing out to that real value and in investment grade credit that's available and potentially an opportune time for our investors to have a look at. So if you would like to get more information on what was discussed today, please reach out to your QIC relationship manager. Thank you for listening. Please look out for our next QPod and have a wonderful day.